Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. All right, end of year review. 2023, what we like to do is tell you about the biggest trends, the biggest hits, the biggest events, successes, failures, biggest things that happened in women's health innovation in 2023. This is the most popular episode of the years of my third or fourth year doing this. It's so fun. And what I find the most fun is actually predicting what I think is going to happen next year. And then the following year, and I'll do this today, is tell you if any of my predictions came true. I love that part. So first, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Fem Health Insights, just a quick plug on how we've evolved. Part of the update is that we are a startup and we continue to update and change our services and offerings. So first of all, Fem Health Insights is the leading market research firm for women's health innovation. We have a service and a product. Our product is a database, the largest database of women's health innovation startups in the world. So we have over 1,600 now. I think we have about another 100 companies to update this week. So we're always updating it. And you can subscribe either on a monthly or annual basis to that software right through our website, femhealthinsights.com. Go to the data tab and you can subscribe and get access to that data today. It is super powerful. If you are trying to write about women's health, landscape a deal, use it as your CRM. It's an excellent tool that a lot of companies are using for a multitude of reasons. The service that we offer is market research. And this year we did a lot of market landscaping and deep dives. And so companies will have acquisition goals and they want to know about all the companies working in maternal health software. And we'll do a deep dive and show you all the companies working in that space and then actually spotlight companies and even help you with due diligence or introduction to the founder. Um, we've been doing a lot of scientific reviews. So, you know, is it possible to diagnose disease from mental effluent. By the way, it is. That was a super cool project that we had. Uh, but yeah, we have international clients working on a wide scale of projects and products from vaginal health to menopause for different purposes, acquisition, changing markets, trying to find an acquirer, really awesome, awesome stuff. So we even work with investment firms on finding investment data and return on investment. So those services are available. Please just reach out to us, femhealthinsights.com and and contact us and tell us what you're working on. See if we can help you out. Now, the other things we've launched this year, yeah, we've been busy. <laughs> We also launched a mentor network of experts. So our virtual community, which is now on Slack, if you are not a part of it, once again, go to femhealthinsights.com, go to community, join our Slack channel. It's absolutely free. We have over a thousand members in there every day. There is awesome content and dialogue and conversations and debates going on. I absolutely love it. Um, within that is where you'll see I'm really strongly promoting the mentor network. So a lot of people, whether you're a job seeker, a founder, an investor, you could use feedback from other experts and so we have over 50 mentors in our mentor network that you can book office hours with for only $30 a month. That is literally one sushi dinner for hours of expert advice. So super worth it. We have the podcast. Obviously, we've been going strong on the podcast for four years now. We also launched LinkedIn Lives, which I'm also live streaming this on LinkedIn right now. 
I'm now a Forbes contributor, so contributing to Forbes, highlighting different events and companies happening in the women's health innovation space via Forbes Women. Uh, we also have Fem Health Fellowship. I've been having interns for years now and decided to really formalize that program. So we just accepted, I think it's like 22 fellows. It was only supposed to be six, but we had 76 applications to our fellowship. And what that tells me is that people are eager. They're chomping at the bit to work in women's health and they want experience. More about that when I get to the trends and shifts that I've seen this year, but 76 applications for only six positions. So what's a girl to do? Well, she makes more positions up. And so <laughs> stay tuned for our announcement coming up about who we've accepted into our six month fellowship program. We've also launched a deals newsletter. So if you're an investor and you want the best women's health deals in your inbox, subscribe, go to femhealthinsights.com and you can find the thing. It's under the, the data tab where you can subscribe to be a part of our monthly newsletter specifically and only for accredited investors, either individuals or people who work at a firm and then founders, you can submit your deal and we'll submit it and we can help shop your deal around, get you funding. We are launching next year two big things. We are doing bi-weekly reports. So we have so much data and we do our annual landscape report that is coming. So stay tuned. We will have that coming out next year. Um, but the, in the meantime, I've realized that people are usually interested in specific verticals of data. So they'll say, well, you know, your database is great. I only care about the vaginal health data or your database is great. I only care about the bioassay data. And so what I realized is that if we make miniature reports, that's actually better for you and useful for us. And so next year we'll be doing every other week um, different themes of reports and putting that on our website for sale. So stay tuned for all that. Last but not least, I do want to announce that I'm publishing a book next year called The Voice of Femtech, and I cannot wait. Pre-sale should open up soon and hoping that it comes out in April. So please purchase a copy. That would mean a lot to me. And the book is, I think, potentially the first ever book with the word Femtech in the title. So pretty awesome, groundbreaking work. Cool. So those are little updates on Fem Health Insights and Femtech Focus. We have been up to a lot. Now let's get to the good part of the episode that you love, which is trends and shifts in the market throughout 2023. First thing I'd like to do is tell you about what I predicted last year for this year and see how my predictions turned out. So some of the startups that I said, startups to watch, were post-abortion care programs like Vitala Global and We Seek Care. Sure enough, they're doing incredible work. Really interesting how they've kind of found their positions. So We Seek Care has a really strong employer training angle where they're actually selling uh, programs and training services to employers for them to know how to best support their female employees that have had a uh, pregnancy loss or termination. And so I also think this is a really interesting business model. It's a booming business model in women's health, which is direct to employer. The reason this model is so popular is because we are now finally 50% of the workforce. And so our health, women's health, is affecting companies' bottom line. And I am not happy that capitalism is a main motivator and influencer of women's health traction. But you know what? We're going to take what we're going to get, and we'll take it, and we're going to run with it. Until billing codes catch up, until insurances start to actually cover costs, until women's health is reimbursed at the same rate that men's is. Until then, go employers, we're going to sell to you like crazy. 
The other company post-abortion aftercare is Vitala Global. The founder was recognized this year as a top 100 most influential women in Canada. Their app is called Aya Contigo, and it is for women in South America. This year, what did they do? They scaled it to the U.S. So I think my prediction was pretty on point. They are doing really important work. It's good business. Women's health is good business. The next company I told you to watch out for was Day, D-A-Y-E. And sure enough, what they do? They are killing it. Or actually, excuse me, I like to say birthing it. They are birthing it. So the founder was seen speaking this year on major stages like Web Summit. They launched a period pain virtual clinic and they launched a vaginal microbiome at home tampon based test. So it's a tampon. You insert it. You take it out, you send it to them, and they can actually sequence your vaginal microbiome and tell you about infections or how you can better balance for uh, prevention of infection. Really, really cool technology. So bingo company is just totally growing and awesome. Another company I said to watch was Rosie, R-O-S-Y, meetrosie.com. And their uh, data is showing what actually is improving women's sexual wellness. And last year, I heard Lindsay Harper, Dr. Lindsay Harper, the founder, talk about how their data is showing that erotica is incredibly important to women's arousal. And so they're doing awesome. And I recently saw a pitch, and it seems like they might be expanding outside of sexual wellness. And if they do anything else in women's health, as well as they've done sexual wellness, I'm sure it's going to be a great big hit. The other company I suggested to watch was Hera Biotech, the first in-office diagnostic test for endometriosis, which affects one in 10 women. And the only current diagnostic tool is exploratory surgery. They are, they're on track. They uh, started clinical trials this year. They won a bunch of awards. The founders being recognized all over the place. So I, Maybe was a little preemptively. I, I should say that we should watch out for them next year because they're uh, presenting their data actually at JP Morgan's conference. So I need another feminist phrase for that. I predicted my the ovulation too early. <laughs> How's that one? If you have any suggestions for what's a better phrase for like shot too early, like come at me with them because I'm all about changing my language this year. So. Anyways, hair biotech, let's put them on back on the list for next year. Last company I told you to watch is Milkify. They freeze dry your breast milk, give it a shelf life of up to three years. Oh my gosh, super incredible. One of the things that I was hoping that they would improve on that they absolutely have is decreasing the waste and decreasing the price. So what they had originally was like these single packets of freeze dried breast milk, but that's a lot of waste, right? And it's also single packet. So there's just like a lot of, you know, moving pieces when you're shipping all these like little bags of milk and then you get all these little bags back. And I can understand the simpleness and the ease of the single use. But this year, guess what they did? Now it's just kind of like a formula cam. You can actually combine your breast milk or they will and they put it in one big batch. And so it's like two scoops of your freeze dried breast milk. I recently had an interview with them and some of the trends that they're seeing is that women who live in places with the risk of hurricanes. So loss of power are really engaging in their product because you don't need your freezer to be running for your breast milk to stay safe. They're also noticing that women, although they're maybe their breast milk in their breasts have dried up, but they want to continue to breastfeed or provide breast milk to their babies. They have now extending the timeline of breastfeeding by having this shelf life of up to three years. So pump, 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 ladies, Go get it freeze-dried, and then you can use your breast milk for three years for your baby, even if your breasts themselves kind of dry up. 
And the last thing they told me that I thought was really cool is that there are premature babies. They need to like double up on their nutrition. And so women and doctors are actually suggesting for these moms to have their breast milk freeze dried and then doubling up on that powder and limiting that the water content. So that's actually how it dissolves. It's just water, y'all. Water with your breast milk and becomes liquefied breast milk again. Um, preemies, they're doubling up on the powder and that's working well for them. So super cool. I love telling you about companies. This is my favorite part is the innovation, the startup. So they're doing amazing. Here are some trends that I predicted for last year. So last year, some trends I predicted. Where can femtech succeed in the U.S.? And this was something I brought up because we had the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And now women's health is not the same across the United States. Recently, there was a woman in Texas that had to leave the state, even though the Texas Supreme Court said she could get her abortion because the baby wasn't going to survive. And then, you know, other politicians came in and said, well, no, we'll persecute the doctors and hospitals if you do it. So she had to leave the state and it's worldwide news. My employees in London are saying like the news, it's about it over there. And so it's an ongoing question. Where in the United States can women's health really thrive? And I I mean that in terms of individuals, you know, where as a, a woman, a female, can you thrive in the United States, but also as a company, where can you thrive? And there's one city, y'all, there's one city that keeps popping up this year. Like it is just constantly on my radar and that's Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, they have the McGee Women's Hospital. And honestly, I think that is the number one facility for women's health research. I have not come across an institute with as many dedicated women's health researchers, a dedicated department, dedicated programming. In fact, when I talk about conferences later, they have a huge conference that's coming up next year where they're awarding a million dollar research grant to someone working in women's health. So Pittsburgh, y'all put it on your map. You didn't, you may not even know where it is. Go ahead and Google Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania might be the Mecca for women's health innovation in the future. Who knows? Another thing I said last year was women's health can never fully fold back into healthcare, just like pediatrics. So pediatrics is healthcare, right? It's child's healthcare. And yet it is its own thing because children need different sized medical devices, doses of drugs. They have different frequency of diseases, hand, mouth, foot disease and chicken pox, and they need different vaccines. I think it's still, I think it's the same for women's health that you know, and we're going to get to this too, this whole dialogue about femtech as an industry. Do we call it femtech? Should we keep calling it femtech? Are we doing ourselves a disservice? I think that it's just like pediatrics, women's health. Yes, it is healthcare, but you have to tease it apart. There are differences in the way that we receive, the way we need, the way we engage with the healthcare system, similar to children. It has its own division. So I still believe that. Last year, I said that I thought this year we'd see a lot more remote clinical trials, and maybe that was true. I can't necessarily say that I heard a lot about that, but something I did hear I wanted to share was that I heard from several clinical trial locations that they really, really struggle now after the overturning of Roe v. Wade to recruit pregnant women to study pregnancy-related disorders. So they're trying to study postpartum. They're trying to study heart disease and pregnancy. They're trying to study labor and delivery. And they're finding it nearly impossible after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, where they used to be successful, they are now struggling to recruit any pregnant women to enroll in their studies. And the response is a fear 
that if they had a pregnancy loss or termination, that that would be recorded and reported, they would be at risk. So, wow, here you go. Here's some other consequences of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We now have a decrease. It was already difficult to get pregnant people to participate in research and now even harder. Let's shift now into 2023 biggest shifts and trends for this year. Now, I'm going to talk a lot. I have a lot to say about trends that I saw this year, but you know why? Because it's growing. It's booming. It's awesome. Femtech is taking over the world. We're so mainstream. Um, I remember like the first year I did this, I was like, we're, you know, people are starting to say Femtech correctly. I, yeah, we're past that. In fact, the first thing I have here is they know who we are and they know we're going to stay and that this is a movement that is not going anywhere. And I'm so excited to say that from some like woman who is just podcasting about vaginas for fun to being kind of a voice of a, a movement, a global movement. It is, it's honestly an honor. I'm not going to start to cry. I could literally, if I think about it for two more seconds, I get teary eyed imagining that we are literally elevating half the population. And with that, we are elevating the entire population. I think this is a movement that the human race needs and deserves. And um, it is being led by the most altruistic, intelligent, creative, positive humans I've ever met. I've worked in a bunch of industries. I've never met as many fun, collaborative, insightful humans as I have in working in women's health. So it's really exciting to me to think about this is in an industry that needs to be dismantled and then rebuilt based on, you know, thinking about race or socioeconomics or gender bias. Like it's naturally built in from this get go. And I'm, I'm so excited to see what we do. So that was my first thing about this year is that everyone knows we're here. Everyone knows we're here to stay. We ain't going nowhere. There is continued discussion about Femtech as a name, uh, biased against it. So therefore, should we change it? Should we drop the name? Should we just be healthcare? Here's, here's what I have to say about that. Why is there the bias? I don't think the question is what should our name be in order for people to respect us? I think the question is why won't people respect us? And I don't necessarily mean us. I mean this industry, right? I think people respect us as individuals, but all of a sudden, and I even tell founders this because it is absolutely true. Honestly, don't go out there saying that you are a femtech startup. You're going to put yourself in a box because there is bias that is absolutely real in the world. And I think the question is not what our name should be is why is there bias? So for me, it's like, why don't we tell crypto to just call itself fintech? Why is crypto trying to be so different from the rest of the banking technologies or financial technologies, right? Why do they get their own name crypto? No one's saying that, right? No one's saying that. So why is it that when there's a segment of, of healthcare, like pediatrics, that's another one. Why would we say, oh, come on, kids, just call yourself healthcare. You're doing yourself a disservice by distancing yourself from the rest of the industry. And it's like, no, we absolutely need to have our own institution, our own rules and thought leadership and discussions and symbols and, and verbiage because we do require different healthcare. You throw a women's health startup into a regular health tech accelerator. There are suggestions that do not apply to that company. There are suggestions that that company needs that others don't. So I don't know. I think that we need to stop debating on what we should call ourselves and start debating on why people are so uncomfortable with women's health. 
All right. Until men stop leaving women's health panels, that's the question we should be asking. Not should we change the name of the panel? It's why is it when there's a word women's health in a panel that men get up and leave? And this is absolutely true. If you're sitting in there thinking, Britt's making this up. I'm not. I so I pro I've literally seen it where it's a women's health panel and the men rise and they leave. Now, not all men, but I'm gonna say 90%, at least 90%. In fact, I'm on, uh, and we'll talk about this in a moment. This is the longest episode of the year, by the way. So, you know, buckle up. Feel free to like eat your dinner, come back to it. <laughs> it's a long episode. I have a lot to say. But I was recently in, it's called FAB, Femtech Across Borders, founded with uh, Rachel Bartholomew, High Ivy, and Femtech Canada. She's incredible. We'll talk about her later. But we were having this discussion with Femtech leaders from across the world about how, first of all, there was no men in our group already, this, this forum. There's no men. And there were apparently some invited, but like there's so few that even if one or two couldn't make it, like there's none then. And then some people were mentioning that men don't feel comfortable in femtech. And I said, well, I have yet to witness and I'm open to hearing it, but I've yet to witness any man being forcibly made to be uncomfortable. I think we do a pretty good job in femtech of not being men haters. We do a great job of saying, here are the facts that are shocking and abysmal and unacceptable. And by the way, here's the solution we're creating and the huge market opportunity and the return on investment we could all make from it. So I have yet to see where men are actively excluded. This is not an industry that says men are not invited. This is an industry that says men have to be involved. And so when men say they're uncomfortable, here's what comes up for me. Now, this is like purely Brittany Barreto's opinion. Women have a lot of experience walking into rooms, especially in healthcare or technology or innovation or entrepreneurship and being the only woman in the room. You can ask any female in healthcare or technology or entrepreneurship, have you ever walked into a room where you were the only woman? Yes. I would like to know how often men have that experience. Maybe that in itself is uncomfortable for them, but that is not an industry problem. That is just because femtech is an industry led predominantly by women, and there are reasons for that. And I've talked about that on other forums, but I think that maybe just the simple experience of being the man who walks into an all-female room is a comfortable step one. Step two, what are we talking about? We're talking about breast milk. We're talking about heavy menstrual bleeding. We're talking about menstrual cramps and PMS and hormone cycles and vaginal dryness and atrophy and pelvic organ prolapse and menopause and hot flashes. And these are things that not only does the man not necessarily have experience with personally, he may not have ever heard about it in his life because we live in a world that creates taboo so deep about women's health that even myself, as Dr. Brittany Verretto, voice of Femtech, I didn't know my mom had gone through menopause. She didn't even tell me. In fact, it was in 2020, I did a menopause episode and she texted me saying like, oh, wow, yeah, that was like a lot of my experience. Turns out she may have even had endometriosis. She started talking to me about how heavy her periods were. She couldn't go to school because the cramps were so bad. And, you know, and I just think about, wow. Like here I am, you know, prior to even being the voice of Femtech, like feminist geneticist, really open about sexuality. I've always been a very open, sensual, open book kind of person. I, I sold sex toys in college to make ends meet. So again, another day, another story. But like my mom still never told me about her own female experience. And it's not that her and I even had a very taboo, like we talked about periods and stuff. And yet there were things like menopause that were off the table. 
All that to say, of course, men have never had these dialogues. Women haven't even had these dialogues. And so, yes, I also think that makes them feel uncomfortable. And so if they think that they're excluded, I question whether that's actually the feeling they're feeling. And in fact, it's actually a feeling of just discomfort. And I invite men to please lean into it. You know what? Raise your hand. Say, hey, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable and I'm leaning in. I have a lot of questions and I don't know even how to ask them. Like, my experience in Femtech is that it is filled with women who would love nothing more than to have a curious man in the room who's open-minded and wants to learn. Like literally the most welcoming scenario. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Good Clean Love. I want to tell you a little secret about what's in my nightstand. It's Good Clean Love's Almost Naked Personal Lubricant. It's a water-based lube made of organic aloe vera designed to mimic my body's natural lubrication, all thanks to their Biomatch technology. Good Clean Love's patented Biomatch technology taps into three factors that can maintain a healthy vaginal microbiome. These are osmolarity, a healthy vaginal pH range, and lactobacilli. Good Clean Love's products are isoosmolar to help you maintain moisture and not strip it away. They have a pH range of 3.5 to 4.5, so the products match your vaginal pH range, and they contain lactic acid to help maintain a healthy vaginal microbiome. The holidays are coming up, and it's not too late to get your stocking stuffers, just like their travel size balance wash, because needing good lube isn't just an at-home priority, if you know what I mean. So get 10% off your first order with promo code FEMTECH at goodcleanlove.com. Shop products that are made to match your vaginal microbiome at goodcleanlove.com. And again, use promo code FEMTECH for 10% off. Now back to today's episode. With that, I'll actually just kind of jump into another prediction I have, which is why are women's health companies founded by females underfunded significantly, and I'm actually working, we are working at Fem Health Insights on a paper on this. We're calculating the funding rate and then the gender of the founders, but I'll give you a little precursor. What the results are showing is that if you have a solely female-founded femtech company, you are the least likely to fundraise in comparison to a co-ed founded group, so a women's health company. So if you have a female and male pair, and then the most funded women's health company is a male or two male founded company. Why is it that, okay, these companies are getting funded more, even though they are actually the least, we have 85% of companies are solely female founded, 85%. And yet they're the least likely to fundraise compared to the 15% of either co-ed or male founded companies. So why is this? First, I think it's just all the talk about, you know, funding male founders versus female founders, like go ahead and just sprinkle all those facts into this. I'm going to add something else here that I think. This is, again, Brittany Barretta's opinion. I think that when you have predominantly male investors, which is the case at the end of the day, it's predominantly male investors. And I've been a VC. I've worked at a VC fund, the most active fund in Texas. I've even started my own VC fund. So I, I've been in these rooms. I know what I'm referring to, right? These assumptions are somewhat based on reality that a lot of times the deal that gets funded is the one that you're most excited to talk about. 
The deal that gets funded is the one where the general partner, the investor, wants to go to every you know networking event and talk about it, get on stage as they're describing their fund and the types of investments they're doing. They love to plug it in. They love to say how badass and cool it is and feel cool talking about it. And if you have a company working on heavy menstrual bleeding, uterine fibroids, they may not feel as excited to talk about it. Maybe they kind of do, but maybe they don't feel comfortable enough to stand on stage talking about it. So that's the first thing is like, how do we make women's health something that everyone feels comfortable talking about? Not only comfortable, but excited to talk about. Okay. And you know, at the same time, I can even say like, as a woman talking about menstrual bleeding, it's not as sexy as when I talk about like tampons that would work in space on Mars or something, right? Like there's a certain amount of flair that uh, every investor wants to have. And so, okay. But how about this? I think that the reason that the male founded women's health companies get funded more than the solely female is because the male investors can use the male founders as a mirroring tool to know what to say in order to not sound stupid and to not be inappropriate. That's my prediction. Whether they know it or not, and I don't know how to actually do this experiment, I would need some male investors who are really intuitive with their emotions and their thoughts and then also really willing to share it. I would do it anonymously if you're a male investor who wants to tell me your feelings. I'll do it anonymously, but I think that when a male investor sees a male founder pitching, whether he's co-pitching or solo pitching with a female founder, and the way that he describes the embryo during conception or vaginal dryness during menopause or menstrual bleeding during your period, that the male investor says, well, if I just say what he says in that way, then I know that I'm saying the right things and I'm not saying anything inappropriate. That's my prediction. And I don't think that male investors intend to say anything inappropriate. They don't want to say anything inappropriate. But like at the end of the day, when you've never even talked about these things, I even catch myself, like my perfect example of this is Milk Stork. I interviewed the founder of Milk Stork, which is a a company that sells to employers. So when women are breastfeeding and working and traveling, the company can pay for her breast milk to be shipped overnight back to her baby. And I made some comments about this is so great for employers and da, da, da. And then she mentioned like, oh, well, women, you know, who take on travel, like vacation, they can do it too. And I realized that that whole time I was being biased in terms of breastfeeding moms, like weren't allowed to do anything except for work or be home with their babies. Like I totally forgot that women who are actively breastfeeding are also allowed to take a girl's trip to like Miami and also send their breast milk back, right? Like they don't always have to be working or mothering. And so even I, and I was like six months into my podcast at that point. So, but I think that um, unfortunately VC comes with a lot of ego and um, a lot of risk aversion. And so ego says, don't say anything stupid. You need to be the smartest, most powerful person in the room because that's just how this industry is built and the power dynamics of it, which I think is crap, but is what it is. And then second, I'm fearful of saying something inappropriate, whether I um, intended it to be or not, because the worst thing my firm can do or my investment portfolio could have is that there's some article that goes out that I said something inappropriate and everyone comes down on me and my fund flops, right? The investors are putting all of their money into this. They're not paying themselves for years at a time. And typically they're already pretty wealthy to start off with. This is true. But nevertheless, they're investing all of their money, all of their time. That is their career. And taking a a company that you might potentially say something stupid in, I mean, I don't know, y'all. 
I don't even know if they even recognize that that is why I think that they're passing on the deal. Why do femtech deals get to the final discussions and then there's a pass? I think there's some underlying anxiety. So I don't know. Help me figure out how to do that experiment, but that's my prediction. So what else happened this year? All right. We less about Brit's opinion, more about uh, events. We had a huge stuff like acknowledgement by the White House a few weeks ago. The Biden administration created a new task force to uh, look at women's health and how do we elevate it? How do we improve it? This is, in fact, likely a response to the woman's vote. The woman's vote is absolutely critical in the next presidential election. Ladies, it, register to vote. Um, if you are in a country in the world, because we do have listeners in over 60 countries, if you are, are in a democracy, register to vote. Go vote, 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 vote. Your voice is so freaking important. It is so important. And so I do think this task force was kind of a, uh, you know, They're throwing a bone at women's health, but little do they know that we are the hungriest dogs in the field and we're going to chew that bone and we're going to come back and tell them, here's exactly what you need to do if you actually want to do women's health. And I'm on a few of these committees. So, oh, believe me, Bidens are going to hear from us. Uh, Stay tuned for me to send out a letter for y'all to sign that they should put me on the task force because, you know, I'll hold them to the fire. So really excited about that. Another thing that happened this year, the Gates Foundation partnered up with the National Institutes of Health created a thing called the Innovation Equity Forum, where they brought together 250 leaders in women's health from around the world, uh, including yours truly. And we came up with the top 50 suggestions for how to improve women's health globally. And it was a lot of work and it was a lot of fun. It was over nine months. And I remember I went to Washington, D.C., to the NIH headquarters and met with over 100 of the other delegates. And it was absolutely incredible. Some of the biggest things that I learned from it is that that women's health challenges are diverse around the world, but at the same time, they're all the same. There are some countries really struggling for, with fertility. There are some countries really struggling with unplanned pregnancy. There's countries struggling with maternal mortality, aging women, contraception. And yet at the end of the day, some of the major influences were all the same. It's gender inequality, taboos around women's bodies, a lack of education around the female anatomy, just some baseline things that if we address those globally, we could potentially elevate all the solutions that are serving all the different complications and challenges and problems around the world. And the other thing I learned, really learned about, and I was really grateful for this, it was a really humbling experience, was learning about LMICs. Admittedly, I don't even know what that acronym stood for. It's low and middle income countries. So LMICs, low and middle income countries. And I realized, wow, um, I was having a super American normative idea in my mind that we innovate and we disperse technologies around the world, right? Because we have all these startups and VCs and da, da, da. And um, I was chair of the innovation committee and this equity forum. And oh, what I loved about that forum was that there are passionate people there and I got educated and I loved it. I love learning where my biases are because that is, that's where I grow the most. So for example, um, I learned about how we as Americans could really learn from the rest of the world in terms of how women's health should be done. Um, I mean, I guess I kind of always knew we didn't necessarily win in the women's health category, but I did think we were winning in innovation and investment. But listen to the story. 
there was a research project where they said, well, women in lower middle income countries are way more likely to carry their babies on their body with a type of wrap for hours on end during the day, while American women are typically putting babies in bassinets or little jumpers or little stroller, not on the body. And so they took like 250 American women and they split them in two groups. And one of the groups, they said, here's this like body wrap for your baby. I think they call it like a kangaroo wrap. You need to wear your baby on your body for this many hours a day. And what they found was that the women who held the babies on the body had statistically significantly less likely to develop postpartum depression. And they are speculating that that was due to the human touch with the baby on the body. And so, booyah, let's go look at how motherhood and female health is done in other countries, specifically LMICs, and start to ask, Well, yeah, the woman's doing that because she ain't got time or access to a little jumper baby seat thing. You know, she's got to go get the water. She's got to go kill a chicken. She's got to do this. She's got to do that. But like, maybe it's not just a matter of her doing that for productivity purposes. Maybe there's actually health benefits. So I learned a lot from that experience. It was really awesome. Another thing that happened this year was AI. I couldn't do an end of year review without talking about artificial intelligence. So first of all, I just want to tell all you listening, it is a excellent time to be a content creator. Oh my gosh. You can write articles faster. You can edit videos faster. You can create scripts faster. You can post on social media faster. There are so many webinars right now happening. Go look on YouTube, how to make a social media content calendar with a marketing strategy using AI. Like go do it. Go figure out how to do TikTok using AI, editing your videos for the most you know, shareable and viral video clips, like all these apps are now out there. It's super great. I know I'm using using it. And I think that for women's health to go mainstream, if you're listening to this, you probably enjoy women's health to come some capacity. Maybe you're even doing some content around it. Go accelerate your content using AI. Boom, do that. Some of the ways we're seeing AI integrated in women's health is through chatbots. So we see there's a company in India called Cranberry. They created an AI chatbot through WhatsApp for women in India to have their women's health questions answered. Similar in the U.S., we have a company called Emma, previously Social Mama with Amanda as the founder. She is my good friend who I saw launch Social Mama back in the day. It's super cool to see her evolve. So the company's now called Emma, E-M-A, Women's Health uh, Chatbot for answering all your questions, women's health. The other ways we're seeing AI is using to predict disease or predict success in women's health. So breast cancer, we have companies like Clarity, Isono Health, and Fathom X. These are all companies using AI to look at mammograms and different types of diagnostic, you know, assays for breast cancer and predicting it before the human eye can notice anything. So I actually wrote an article about this that you can now using AI predict five years ahead of the human eye could based on looking at a mammogram. It would take five more years of mammograms for the human eye to pick up on a a cancerous growth. So essentially, it's not that AI has better eyesight. It's that it is literally artificial intelligence. It has learned something about some kind of feature in these images that is indicating likelihood of breast cancer. And so it is able to identify it before our human eye, which is so cool. Similarly, cervical cancer, we have mobile ODT and the smart tampon out of Johns Hopkins. 
they're both using different types of cameras, kind of like, you know, AI and face recognition, but for your cervix, where you put it into your vagina, look at the cervix, take a picture, take one next year, start to be able to predict cervical cancer. Super cool. Fertility. So MIM and AIVF. These are two companies using AI to increase significantly the success rate of fertility. MIM, MIM, they were on our podcast and I found it so fascinating. What their software does is they analyze embryos and similar to the mammograms where there's an embryologist who's looking in a microscope, looking at different fertilized eggs, i.e. little embryos, predicting which one they should select to put into their female patient, right? And they look for different markers. And what they did was they showed hundreds of thousands of these embryos and the end results, whether they were successful or not to these AI algorithms. And so MIM made this algorithm that is equivalent to 30 embryologists looking at your embryos. So wouldn't you rather 31 embryologists assessing which embryo to implant for increasing chances of success? And so it's not replacing the embryologist. You still have your embryologist, but what they're using is now you have scores. Now you're not only just using your own eyeballs. Now you actually have scores. And again, the algorithms are seeing stuff that we cannot see. It's it's absolutely incredible. I love it. So great. So AI totally being utilized in women's health as it should be. Um, some exciting things in the pipeline are self-collection is being considered by the FDA via a at-home swab kit by BD. So at-home self-collection could actually replace the pap smear. So, you know, there are countries in the world where you do not have to go to your gynecologist, put your feet in the straps and get naked and have someone scrape your cervix. You can actually do that at home. And so the FDA is considering an at-home swab test by BD to be able to do self-collection at home. So women, we might in the near future be able to just have our annual pap smear at home. Super cool. And I actually did a Forbes article on this because it's like, well, if that's the case, actually ACOG, American College on Obstetrics and Gynecology, even says a pelvic exam is not necessary if you're able to do self-collection, like unless there's a health issue or like family history. But I'm a healthy 32-year-old female woman. Like if I didn't have any issues, I might not have to go to that. Now, uh, you guys would miss out on a great TikTok, of which I'll obviously going to go do, but uh, you can see where I'm going with that. Some other stuff that happened was Silicon Valley Bank. Yep, that is still around, <laughs> by the way. That was a huge debacle this year, but that's another podcast. SVB, they are still around. They got acquired. Um, they just released a report last week. It's really excellent. They did great uh, visuals. They did great deep dives on the women's health space. One thing I'm going to say, I really wish they called me up, y'all. Really wish they called me up because all of their data, they cited PitchBook. Most people are citing PitchBook. And PitchBook, to me woefully lacks in their women's health data. First of all, they are typically tracking companies that have already raised a fund round, funding raising round, or have had some kind of PR. Otherwise, that's how their algorithms pick up on these companies. And women's health is so predominantly new in terms of early stage. 60% of femtech companies were founded in the last five years. We're very new industry. And so I think that they're missing out on a lot of data, probably on a lot of companies. The other thing is that they showed only like 10 exits for this year and my company's showing like 20. So stay tuned for the data on that in our landscape report. I'll probably even do a call out <laughs> of PitchBook um, and maybe the SVB report citing them on it. Now, SVB, publish on y'all, publish on. We need all the reports. We need all the data. 
even if it's not totally complete, it was positive and it was excellent. And the more that major names publish on women's health data, the, it's a popularity contest, right? So like the more investors hear about something, the more they're going to say, well, this is so mainstream, I have to be involved. So publish on, just give me a call next time. It will help you with your data. Another thing that even they called out in their report, and it's been something I've been thinking about, is the high rate of undisclosed exits. And so what I mean by that is uh, a company will get acquired, like a startup can get bought out by another larger company that's called an exit or an acquisition. And you see a lot of times in a lot of industries, um, you know, so-and-so company was bought for $250 million by this company. Well, in women's health, I would say eight out of 10, I'm going to go with 80% of the time it is undisclosed for an undisclosed amount. So, you know, so-and-so was acquired by so-and-so for an undisclosed amount. Now, historically, this is a business tactic used when the, the acquirer got a really good deal. They got a really good deal and they want the PR to seem like a really big, like big news, big deal, but they also know that they underpaid for this company. And so, you know, that kind of signals like, well, how much do they truly value moving into the space? They're usually trying to send a message of like, we're going to be the new leaders in it. We really care about it. And so if you really undercut a predominantly female founded industry in women's health and you're showing what you think it actually is worth that you might not do well for you in the PR. So why are they undisclosed y'all? Why are they undisclosed? I want to know more. Abortion is still a top issue in the United States and uh, how men get to continue to dictate how women birth. I actually want to do a Forbes article on this in terms of like women did not birth on their backs until men got in the game. And then they said, you need to be on your back because that's a more uh, feminine position for you to be in as a woman versus what our natural state is, which is squatting or being on all fours and screaming and it's messy and there's liquid and there's stuff and um, men got into our healthcare and they said, you need to be restrained and on your back is not what gravity is helpful for. So anyway, stay tuned for that article, but that is a continued issue. Something kind of cool that's happened in terms of overturning of Roe v. Wade, if we could say that at all, is there has been a significant increase in men's interest in taking birth control. I was at a contraception conference about a month ago and they had some behavioral scientists who had just finished a huge like 30,000 male survey in the U.S. for how likely men were to want to take their own birth control. And it wasn't that high. It was okay. Better than years past. Like men today are much more inclined to take some more accountability. The overturning of Roe v. Wade doubled, doubled the interest of men wanting to take birth control. So that's very exciting. At that conference, I also learned about three drugs that are in clinical trials. So stay tuned, guys. You're going to get what you wish for. We're going to get you the birth control. Take that off of our backs, please. Some other things that happened this year, and this is kind of intense, and I'm not going to harbor too much on it because I'll cry, um, rightly so, and that's not a bad thing. I'm fine with that, but I'll... Just say that this to me was a year of revealing the darkness of gynecology um, and obstetrics. There were some really intense cases that came to light. If you are a podcast listener, if you're listening to this on Spotify or something, go check out the show called The Retrievals. 
Holy moly, y'all. The retrievals, it's about a Yale university, literally the Yale, Yale university, uh, fertility clinic where a nurse had a fentanyl addiction and was stealing women's pain medication during their egg retrievals for their fertility treatment. And um, I'm giving a little bit of away, but it's still <laughs> not all of it. Believe me, it is a shocking, it's short series journalism podcast. And essentially, the moral of the story is that hundreds of women, y'all, and we're not talking even a handful, a dozen, hundreds of women for years were screaming, saying, I am in excruciating pain. I feel everything. And everybody, it wasn't just one doctor, it wasn't just one nurse, it wasn't just one admin, an entire system of dozens of healthcare professionals told these hundreds of women, you're exaggerating. That's not true. I gave you all the pain meds I'm legally allowed to. You just must want more drugs. You just must be extra sensitive. And it finally was revealed that this woman was stealing their drugs and giving them saline, saline, and Yale tried to just cover it up because they're Yale, right? And they don't want that to come out. But one of the biggest questions for me that the show brought up was how do we perceive women's pain? How were hundreds of women able to be tortured, tortured in our healthcare system and told that that was a normal experience. So, wow, go check out the retrievals. Again, women are coming out with their stories. Women have been abused and used and manipulated in the healthcare system. And I think we're starting to tell our stories. And God, I hate it because it's it's horrible what's coming out. But at the same time, like this is what's going to make it stop. This is what's going to Hopefully somebody in an office somewhere says, hey, that's the third person I heard say that they were in excruciating pain. Maybe we need to reassess what's happening. I'm going to send a report in. So the retrievals was a huge show. Um, and then we've had scandals like Hayden, Dr. Hayden out of Columbia, sexually abusing his female patients. And Dr. Brian, a not board certified doctor doing terrible things to women. So these are things that are coming out about how gynecologists have been abusing their patients. And I think that it actually leads to my next big point in terms of things that are happening this year. We're starting to see the female patient say enough is enough and I deserve better. So what I think is happening is that prior to the rise of femtech, women did not know there was any other option. If you've lived in a cave your whole life, <laughs> you never went outside, you never felt sun on your skin, how could you ask for it, right? Maybe there was a few cave women that went out, felt it, and came back and tried to tell the rest, but who knows, right? When you've never experienced something, how can you say, that's what I need, that's what I deserve, and this is unacceptable? This darkness is unacceptable. And what I think is happening is that we're destigmatizing women's health. So now we're starting to see stuff, especially on TikTok. TikTok is a crazy tool that I think is actually bursting down the walls of women's health stigma. So we are learning about our periods. We're learning about fertility. We're learning about ovulation. We're learning about menopause. Women are more likely today, this is like a recent statistic, women are more likely to go to TikTok and uh, learn about menopause than they do on Google. And that says a lot because there's another statistic that's people under 30 are more likely to TikTok search a medical question before they Google it. That I, I can accept. It's generational. The fact that menopausal women, women over 45 today, of whom TikTok is something their kids are on, right? Not necessarily them, 
are using TikTok as their main source of information tells me something about all the other sources of information and how woefully lacking they are. And so I think that we're having this deep education, destigmatization of uh, women's health. And now we have the rise of femtech and there are new solutions coming to market. And women are saying, this is BS. I know the sunlight is outside this cave and I want it. I want it all. And guess what? I freaking deserve it. And I'll change doctors. If you're a doctor who wants to keep me in this painful dark, you don't want to give me pain medication. You don't believe me when I say, I think this infection has not gone away yet. You think I'm overreacting when my cyst bursts, when you, you know, tell me menopause, hot flashes is just something, right? Like, I'm done being gaslighted and I'm ready to move out into the light. And the doctors that are having pain medication uh, treatment regimens, the ones that are innovating and using new medical devices that don't hurt as much to insert your IUD, ones that are asking women about their birth control um, lifestyles and like, what do you actually want from your birth control and believing them when they say, here are my symptoms, they don't question it. They just, they believe the patient and, and do what they want those are the doctors that are going to be successful. So I'm really obviously very excited about that. I had a few TikToks go viral this year. One of them was a demonstration of a new medical device called a Spivix. So Spivix is replacing the tenaculum. So anyone who's ever had an IUD inserted, it is incredibly painful. So essentially um, you have the uterus and at the bottom of the uterus, you have the cervix. The cervix is what I like to think about is like kind of the knot on the balloon right? So it kind of keeps the the air in the balloon or the baby in the uterus, if you will. And to pass the cervix, it's a very tight little loop. It's a little hole to get through that. And with an IUD, you need to stabilize it. You need to hold it still so it doesn't wiggle around. You don't puncture anything else. And what we use is this thing called a tenaculum. It's these metal forceps that clamp down, not only just pinch, like they literally have a clamping effect, like a ranch that like you can clamp and then leave it. That's what it does. It clamps down and it has a rigid edge, rigid, clamps down on the cervix and causes a massive cramp in the cervix. And that's what they use to stabilize it and insert the IUD or go in there for a uterine sample in case they think you might have a fibroid or cancer or anything where you have to pass the cervix. This is what they're doing. And it is causing incredible amounts of pain, right? And Aspivix, what they've done, super cool. It's like a little smiley face, a little half half moon, and it uses suction. So you just slides into the vagina, goes right up, sits next to the cervix. You pull, it creates suction. It holds the cervix in place. Their clinical trials showed, I think it was like 70% decrease in pain levels, totally stabilized cervix as well as the forceps did and, uh, or the tenaculum and they were able to IUD insert. So I did a little demo of this, um, company's device and put it on TikTok. To date, it has like 3.8 million views and 5,000 comments. What that tells me is that this is a major pain point and people are, um, very engaged and excited for this is to be something that's fixed. And this is so perfect because my next point that I want to talk about is um, an interesting block for entrepreneurs that I didn't predict, um, kind of find it shocking actually, which is we have a very low adoption by gynecologists for new innovations. I have founders that have came up with an idea, went through the MVP, product design, they've gone FDA, they got approved, clinical trials, the whole nine yards. They've even got billing codes, so it's getting billed for, insurance is covering it. And yet they go to doctors and they're like, cool, like 
We, and so this is a true story with a Spivix. They were going to physicians in the United States where it's FDA approved. You can get reimbursed to use it. They're going to physicians saying, Hey, throw out your tenaculum. Use this. It decreases pain, increases patient experience, you know, like, yeah, awesome, right? It's so easy to use. And doctors were like, meh, I don't really have the time to learn it. Ah, my patients are fine. Mm, this is just how I've learned to always do it. This is how I've always done it. And when these come, and this isn't the only company that's told me this, other companies are telling me that's my experience and we're, our, we don't have the sales that we thought because doctors are unwilling to be trained or use it blows my freaking mind. First of all, here's another Brittany Barreto prediction. Why are these doctors so okay with inflicting pain on their patient? Because I don't think people went to medical school to hurt people. I really don't. I genuinely think they went because they want to help people, right? And so why are they okay with hurting people? I think that women's health is currently naturally inflicts so much pain on the female patient that doctors have to numb themselves in order to do their job. That's my prediction, that it's literally so natural to hurt your female patient as a gynecologist that similar to, I see science all the time, I never killed or hurt a mouse. If I did, it was indirect and didn't know it. I've never actively what they call sacked. They don't even say the whole word, sacrificed. I think that scientists are, many of them are animal lovers, and yet they do experiments on animals of necessity for the science, but at a certain point they get numb to it because it's just part of the process. I think the same potentially for gynecologists, that there's so much natural infliction of pain that they numb themselves to it. And so the motivation to not do that is not necessarily there. Some of the other things that are potentially blocking physicians from being excited about adopting a new women's health innovation is that they are the most overworked physician, they are the least paid type of physician, and they are the most sued type of physician. When you have the most lawsuits, the least paid and the most overworked, you're likely not someone who has space for creativity and innovation and growth. And so God bless all the gynecologists that are. I see you. I appreciate you. But it's something for us in the industry to think about because we can push this boulder up the hill and we get to the top of the hill and the doctors are like, meh, damn, that's the last route. That's the last route from benchtop to bedside. We need the bedside to prescribe and use these solutions. So interesting stuff there. We continue to have a really high rate in femtech of breakthrough designation by the FDA. So the FDA uh, a few years ago launched a new program called Breakthrough Designation that says if your therapeutic or medical device or diagnostic is something that is like going to be the first ever in the market and have significant impact, we will fast track you through the FDA process. And sure enough, women's health is something that is uh, so underserved and no solutions exist and so impactful that we have a really high rate of breakthrough designation, which is pretty cool. Big players like Aura Ring are getting involved in Femtech through partnerships with things like Natural Cycles, using your temperature to check your ovulation. This is a little bit of tougher conversation. Israel, the war over there right now is affecting femtech companies. Israel has some of the highest rates of femtech companies of any country. So London has the most femtech companies per city. Per country, it's United States, but Israel is like a top four in terms of countries with femtech companies. They have a lot of women's health innovation. And what I've been hearing from femtech founders in Israel is because of the war, women's health, when this is what happens, it's the bottom of the barrel. It's the, it's the thing that they're the least worried about in the time. So 
I'm excited for this all to finish and stop so that our femtech companies can get back getting funded, getting their clinical trials running, attending conferences and stuff. And that is all I'll say on that. Barbie! Yay, Barbie! You guys knew I saw it, right? You know I saw it like multiple times. Well, Barbie ends with Barbie going to the gynecologist. Literally the last line of the movie is that she's there to see her gynecologist. What do I think of that? Um, I think that that uh, speaks to being a human and being a woman, right? That your yoni is uh, vital enough to being a human that it was part of the Barbie movie, right? Like a few minutes prior, it was her taking her first breath, right? And like a few moments later, her next significant human moment is going to the gynecologist. So I think there's some, there's life force within our vaginas, within our vulvas that was represented to me in that scene. And I also think it makes it kind of mainstream. And, you know, obviously I like got out of my chair and screamed and yelled and excitement when that scene happened. There is a strong desire to work in femtech. Wow. We have the largest community. And besides founder, right below that, in terms of demographic in our virtual community, it's job seeker. There are so many people who want to work in women's health. Here's the interesting thing. 99% female. Those 76 applications we had for the Fem Health Fellows, all female. Not a single male applied. What does that mean? What's the difference, right? Is it just this literal lack of interest? And that's okay, girl. You don't, you know, like people don't have to be interested in vaginas, right? Like that's a certain type of personality, but there's a lot of women that work in men's health. Why is there so few men that work in women's health? What is that? What is that? And I don't know the answer yet, but let's keep talking about that because this industry won't be as mainstream as it deserves until there's enough men in here that it's... um it's bolstering the, the, the industry appropriately. Another thing that came up this year for Femtech was Britney Spears's memoir. I just finished reading it. And in the memoir, she talks about her abortion and postpartum depression. And I don't know if she would have written about those things 10 years ago. I mean, obviously based on her experience and stuff, she wasn't allowed to type, talk about this stuff, but let's say femtech is wasn't happening for another 10 years would she have been that open about abortion and her postpartum depression in her memoir i don't know something to think about something that's happening unfortunately for our industry is companies are closing due to a lack of funding my advice to femtech companies because funding is tight for everyone right now funding is super tight for everyone there's not a lot of funding for anybody right now honestly and so my advice to companies is to keep your day job. Honestly, keep your day job and focus on revenue. Now, that's really hard to say for companies that are in medical device or diagnostics. And for that, I would say focus on grants. We got to get more grants. We got to get more government funding involved here. And if you have a CPG product, though, do yourself a favor and focus on getting that revenue and keep your day job because this is not for the faint of heart and your company needs to survive to get out into the market. And you need to decide whether you want your product in the market ever. So therefore keeping your company alive is the critical piece in getting it to the market at all in some capacity, or does it need to be in the market today. And now obviously I believe your company's product deserves to be in the market today. And at the same time, I rather it be in the market at some point than never at all because your company had to close because you used all of your credit cards 
to the point that you couldn't afford to live your life anymore. That's what I think is the real tragedy. And so the people who work in femtech are some of the most smartest people I've ever met in my life. And so keep your day job, keep going and try to focus on revenue, run ads, get an MVP out there, confirm that people actually will buy your product. That's another thing is that I have uh, founders with really great products. They do a year, two years of product development and design and testing and they survey women, they survey their interests. And yet when they actually go live, they don't sell a lot. I see that a lot. So don't trust a survey answer, trust a dollar or a euro or a yen, (laughs) whatever, wherever you live, trust that way more than some survey results because women will say they want it. And then all of a sudden you ask them to actually invest in their own health. And unfortunately we live in a world and a society where women's health comes last on the totem pole. They put their family's health way before them. And when you ask them to actually put their money out, it's a lot harder for them to actually do that versus answer yes on a survey. So that's my opinion there. We see an increased interest from corporations in learning about women's health and how to support their female employees. This year, I've did several talks at large Fortune 500 companies about supporting ovulation in the office is one the title of one of my talks. The other one was supporting menopause in the workplace. And we actually see several training companies popping up on coming in and doing corporate training for managers on how best to discuss, handle policy making, you know, corporate policy around paid leave. You know, this talk really started, I think we really started to talk about this when overturning of Roe v. Wade happened. And you have these super liberal tech companies with headquarters in places like Texas. And they're like, well, how do we maintain our values as a company and our benefits and our resources when we are now in a state where this is illegal? So I think that really kickstarted the conversation. And we're seeing a lot of interest. There's a lot of business opportunity there because HR departments have funding. They have funding and I find it usually to be under the DEI initiatives and they haven't spent it on this yet. And they do find it to be an important aspect. So that's a kind of cool business model and opportunity there. And last thing I'll say in terms of trends for this year is women's health is still being considered more of a contribution than an investment. And what do I mean by that? Well, Femtech Focus is technically a nonprofit, 501c3 nonprofit, and Fem Health Insights is technically a for-profit corporation. And I will ask for a speaker fee sometimes when I get asked to speak in certain uh, situations. And I'll say, you know, Hey, here's my speaker fee. And they'll say, Oh, well, we don't have a budget. We don't, we don't pay speakers. We have no money. No, 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 no. Then sometimes I'll go and I'll say, Hey, I ask for a donation of my nonprofit in exchange for giving a talk on women's health. And I'm telling you y'all, my probability of getting paid via a donation of my nonprofit versus a payment to my for-profit dramatically different. Now, obviously, you know, the accountants listening to this, having heartburn about how I'm paying myself through it. Don't worry about it. I do it all (laughs) ethically. But what I'm getting at here is why is it that when women's health is put into the context of a donation to a nonprofit, it is much more likely to convert versus a payment to a company, an investment, a business development decision I find that very interesting. I think that women's health is still considered a nice thing to do versus an investment in a business. That's my opinion there. 
Next category in our things for this year, we have conferences. So the biggest conferences are the Kiasco Women's Health Research Innovation Summit or WIS, I think they're calling it. Admittedly, I find their content to be useless. I've told them that. Y'all know that. I say it out loud all the time. When I go to these conferences, specifically I go to their big one in Boston in September every year. That's the one I go to. I find their content to be pretty much useless. It is reiterating the same messages that we say all the time. It's nothing new. They are conference producers. They are not femtech experts. And so whatever. What I do think is the value in that is that it is where we all get to meet. I think it is the best place to network. It's a place to meet all the decision makers from the pharma companies actually working in women's health. It's a place where founders can actually congregate. I don't necessarily love that it's in Boston. It's incredibly expensive. I mean, the ticket alone, it is not founder friendly at all, let alone job seeker or student friendly. But I digress. I do think it's an excellent networking location. This year was the first year of Med Femtech Congress in Paris. That one was really awesome. I really enjoyed myself there. They had science panels, loved it. They had panels on new epigenetic, you know, research for early onset menopause and oh, it was delightful. Really enjoyed that. We have McGee Women's Summit coming up November 2024. Apparently it's like the third year they're doing it, but this year they're really trying to include more innovation. So Hopefully they'll bring me onto an advisory position and I can help them do that. Uh, health, HLTH, the big health tech conference in Las Vegas and then now Amsterdam. This was the first year their award ceremony included a women's health award. So Fem Health Insights was proudly able to present that award. And once again, it was kind of like a no brainer for them. Like, oops, why haven't we had this yet? And I'm glad that they started to include it. In terms of investments in 2023, we had no new funds that popped up this year, but there is one that just told me they closed and PR is going to be coming out around them. So there was one fund that was raising this year incognito and they're about to announce themselves. So that's great. We have one more fund in the game investing in women's health specifically. Some ideas that I'd love to see pursued is a fund of funds and a crowdfunding platform specifically for women's health. So fund of funds is like for those who don't know how venture works necessarily the quick and dirty of it is that even venture funds so they're like pots of money that are investing in startups they themselves have to fundraise from other people and so there are cities that have said well we want there to be more investment in our city in the startups in our city and so what they've done is they make a big pot of money and then they actually invest in other funds so that's why it's called a fund of funds because it's a fund that invests in funds they don't invest in startups they invest in funds that invest in startups. And so there's like a little bit of a caveat to them investing. They say, hey, in order for you to get our money, you need to visit. So Houston had this. This is why I know so much about it because I was an entrepreneur in Houston and I witnessed it. They had like a $100 million fund and they invested in the most popular funds around the country. And they said, hey, in exchange for getting our money, you have to come to Houston every year for two days and hear pitches from our founders. And the investors were like, sure, whatever. Give us $25 million. We'll come to Houston twice a year. And we put on the biggest and best pitch days they've ever seen in their lives. And sure enough, what happened was they started to invest capital in Houston-based startups and the whole ecosystem grew from that. And so I think that there's an opportunity for there to be a fund of funds where we invest in other health tech and femtech specific funds with caveats. 
I don't know what they should be yet. Let's all brainstorm about it. I think some of the caveats should be that all the general partners and venture partners and investment decision makers have to take like a sex ed class and learn about women's health innovation and learn about the female anatomy. I think that they have to hear so many pitches per year. There are plenty of organizations that I think would love to host these types of days. Women Wearables, Fermata, Femtech Focus, Femtech Canada, Femtech France. Like there's so many organizations now that they were tapped and said, can you help us put on a pitch day? Like done, done. We would put on the best pitch days. So I think there should be a fund of funds. And then I think there should be a crowdfunding platform specifically for women's health that's catered to the female individual to invest their capital in. And I think that it could be a really cool platform to actually assess women's interest. Again, what did I say earlier? Don't just trust their survey results. Trust their dollars or their yen or their euro. Ask them to put their money into something as you're building it. There was something that I uh, heard uh, Priya, the founder of Evie, say at a conference this year that I just loved, and I'm going to share it with you. She said she hates it when investors say, oh, I have already made my women's health investment. As in, if you just make one, then you're good to go. Like your portfolio is covered. The box is checked. And she said, when I hear an investor say, oh, I've already made my women's health investment, it's the equivalent to saying, I've already made my internet-based investment, right? Like it's ridiculous to say... <laughs> that, especially when women's health is so diverse. Anyways, I love that quote when she said that. There's new femtech organizations popping up all the time, but the one I'd like to shed light on is the FAB Forum, Femtech Across Borders. It's creating a femtech manifesto, so stay tuned for that for us all to reference in terms of what is femtech. I do still see people categorizing care, like child care or adult care, as femtech, and I really despise that because that is a gender norm. That is not women's health. That is something that disproportionately affects us based on a society opinion on what our jobs are, not a biological reason that we have endometriosis. And so that's my opinion there. All right, let's get into some startups and people to watch for next year. And then I have a few predictions and then that is it for our year. We're doing great. Influencers, who are some of the biggest names in femtech in my opinion this year? Rachel Bartholomew. Oh my gosh. She is just this powerhouse, cancer survivor, founder of High Ivy, pelvic floor health medical device to help women with pelvic health, specifically for like post-cancer, but also for lots of other indications. She's the founder of Femtech Canada, or at least co-founder of it. She's the co-founder of FAB, the Femtech Across Borders. She's doing healthcare policy in Canada. She, I just feel like she's everywhere and I don't know how. And keep going, girl. I see you. Very similarly, Susan Stover. Susan Stover, another Canadian woman who is just like everywhere. She runs my Femtech Focus book club. She is actually the sales for High Ivy. She's with Femtech Canada. She's with Fab, like another woman who's just like all over giving her blood, sweat and tears to the industry. And I just see you guys and I just wanted to give you a shout out. Another woman, similar vein, Lindsay Davis, founder of Femtech Association Asia. She's doing some really great work in East Asia around women's health innovation out there. And I really appreciate her work. Another badass woman, Navit Kerr, founder of Femtech India. Another woman that's just like taking the world by storm. She came out with a coffee table book this year on women's health innovation. She has a podcast. Navit, you're doing amazing. 
Another awesome woman, Oriana Kraft in Europe. She's really tapping into the pharma companies in Switzerland. I see you, Oriana. Keep it up. Helen from Wild AI. She's just unapologetically feminist and I just love it. This year she had a baby and I mean, the number of times I saw her presenting or pitching or contributing with a baby on her chest was absolutely just so heartfelt and awesome. We have Valentina Milanova, the founder of Day. She's also been on the biggest stages in the world, unapologetically saying vagina and vaginal microbiome. Go, girl, go. We have Gila from Med Femtech Congress, Gila Tulub. She is from McKinsey and is another innovator. She's in Israel right now. So thoughts and good positive vibes over to her and her family. But she's another one who just has came out of the woodworks and is like, I'm going to make a change. And I love it. Let's go. The last influencer I have for this year. I mean, y'all, this is, it's hard to pick. If you want to see 200 names, go check out Women of Wearables, 200 influencers. They just published it last week. So 200 more names over there. This is a very small amount for me to try to fit in, but it's Jamie White. She's over at National Institutes of Health. And Jamie White was a huge part of the Innovation Equity Forum with Gates and NIH. And she's just doing really great work, showing up to all the conferences in women's health, really trying to get the United States government up to speed. And she is just a powerhouse woman that knows people and is making moves. So go, Jamie. Startups that shined this year, we have Mosey Baby with at-home insemination Kate got the first FDA approval for that type of a device. So go Maureen Brown with Mosey Baby. We have Keg with Christina as the founder and Keg is a cervical fluid monitor. And what they do is they predict your fertility window and they are a profitable hardware device that's direct to consumer in a crowded fertility space. You might say there's no way this company is going to be successful. And yet she has brought in more revenue than she has raised and she hasn't raised that much. And she has a lot of revenue and um, it just speaks to the power of the science that she's come up with. It speaks to her leadership. It speaks to the market that when you have a good product and you can sell it on Amazon, you can make a ton of revenue. That's what I said. Y'all focus on your revenue. Um, Midi Health with Joanna Strober, Telehealth for Menopause. They had a big fundraising round this year, and Joanna did a lot of speaking engagements, won a lot of awards for Midi Health. So go Telehealth for Menopause. We have EV, uh, EVVY with Priya. It's an at-home vaginal microbiome sequencing kit. I'm really interested to see what their actual business model is because I think that women just learning about their microbes is great. I think she's got something up her sleeve in terms of telehealth or predicting, you know, because the thing is right now, like you can't even create a solution for vaginal microbiomes because we literally know so little about it. <laughs> Until we know more about it, we we can then create actual drugs or devices or tools or strategies to improve it. And so something tells me that, yes, they're making revenue through selling these kits and women can learn, but I think there's going to be a lot more to the story there. Um, Hertility. Oh my God. If you live in the UK, you've probably heard of Hertility. They have all these billboards. Their founders are all the major things. Dr. Helen O'Neill and Dr. Natalie Getro and Deirdre O'Neill. And Hertility is fertility at home testing, really incredible company. And then this isn't a startup that shined. It's a fund 
Carly Sapir, founding partner at Amboy Street Ventures. She has my favorite portfolio and I'm the co-founder of Coyote. (laughs) Okay. Carly's investments are my favorite. I think this woman is going to be wildly successful. If you are someone looking to put your money into a fund, I would suggest Carly's fund, Amboy Street Ventures. She does have a focus on sexual wellness and I think she's the only one really doing it and she's doing it really freaking well. I met Carly back in 2020 when she was an aspiring VC. So it's also been beautiful to watch a woman chase her dreams and accomplish them. Some startups to watch for 2024 is Essence app, E-S-S-E-N-C-E, Essence. It's a company that is actually an employer business model that helps employers create productivity protocols for their employees based on their menstrual cycle. Think that we've for way too long ignored that women have cycles. And when we are menstruating, we probably shouldn't be pitching the biggest deal of the year. We should probably be emptying our inboxes. And yet when we're ovulating, we should be in front of the room pitching a big deal and getting it because science says we're more likely to get it literally through pheromones and fertility and science. And so I'm really excited to see what the founder Alina is doing with that company. I think it's a strong business model and could dramatically improve productivity and potentially change the way we all work. Avita Medical, founder's name is Peter. It's a postpartum hemorrhage therapeutic device that is going to prevent you from bleeding out after childbirth. And his technology is actually a therapeutic drug that is already used for vascular veins to restrict them and other parts of the body. So it's already proved to be safe. The way he's utilizing it, though, in this gynecological angle, I think is going to be a huge, huge winner. And so, again, if you're looking for a company to invest in, Avita, A-V-E-T-A, I think it's going to be a winner. I think it's a really great, really great product and company. And then we have uh, another company is Unfabled, U-N-F-A-B-L-E-D, Unfabled. It is a marketplace for femtech products. I like this for multiple reasons. One, it's a one-stop shop for women to shop products that are good for them. It's a marketplace that helps direct-to-consumer companies get up and off the ground or gain extra traction via just selling through their platform versus you having to acquire your own customers. And then the data that the founder, Hannah, is going to produce from female consumer purchasing patterns when it comes to their healthcare is going to be really important insights for founders across women's health to learn about what are the best kind of selling techniques and buying patterns of women. Because we haven't had enough solutions to really learn about that stuff. All right. Last thing. I have three predictions for this upcoming year. I think that we're going to have one or two major exits worth $350 million or more if it's disclosed. So we'll see next year if I'm like, there were some big exits, but they didn't say the number. But I'm predicting one or two major acquisitions that are worth $350 million or more. That's what I think. I think it's time. I think the market will be ready. Yeah. Boom. Next prediction. I think there's going to be a new investment vehicle on the horizon. It may not be live by the end of next year, but I think that it'll be in the works. There are currently organizations like the Milken Institute that are even discussing this. We have the White House Task Force discussing this. So I don't know if it's going to be a fund of funds, if it's going to be a government matching program where, hey, if you're a women's health company, you get investment, you know, you can also get government funding up to this amount. 
I don't know. I have a feeling though that we're showing the numbers on the return of investment to prove the case enough now that we need to invest in women's health. And I think there's enough powerful people looking. Now, are they caring? I think that we're still working, getting them to care. (laughs) Really, really care, you know, like billions of dollars care, but we're getting there. So I think that this time next year, I'll be telling you about some new funding vehicles in the works. And then I think next year is the year of the patient, patient empowerment through revealed stories, through journalism, through TikTok. I think that the female patient is sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she's heard of this thing called Femtech, or at least she's starting to hear about things that could be better than her current standard of care. And she demands it and she wants it. And I can think of a better advocate for our industry than the end user. Because that's who this is all really about. We can talk about return on investment, how we're going to make money. We can talk about influence and change and power. And at the end of the day, people in women's health, innovation, people, in femtech and fem health and fem care just want women to live better lives. We think that the female species deserves better care. We deserve to not be in pain. We deserve to be believed. We deserve to be diagnosed, treated. We deserve to not be told like, well, you had the baby. So yeah, your birth was traumatic, but aren't you happy you're a mother now? We are not our babies. We are humans. We deserve the best of the best. And when we live in a society where chat GBT exists and we just got like some samples back from some asteroid that NASA is going to investigate, like we're, we are discussing discovering crazy, crazy and building crazy, crazy things. We can elevate women's health even slightly and make a dramatic impact. And that's what motivates me. And I think that the entire world would benefit when women feel better. When women feel better, I think that the world is is carried on our backs a lot of times. And by a lot of times, I mean all the time. (laughs) That's my opinion. And I think that as we are more in our bodies, as we are empowered to know about our bodies, know what we deserve, I think we're going to see things like decreased violence against women. I think the violence will be there. But what I'm hoping is that at least, and I can speak maybe even more so for childhood abuse, as women and girls become more familiar and empowered in their bodies, there's less shame around it. And so when someone tries to inflict shame on our bodies, whether that's through words or physical, we have an increased chance of it not being okay, right? When we know what is our body and our right, and it is a beautiful, amazing part of us, and someone comes in and tries to take advantage of it, we have an increased chance of reporting them or saying no, right? And we we say no a lot. We do say no, and it's still not listened to. But I hope also Femtech might empower men to then also check themselves And I think that something that would be really great for women's health is if men were able to cry more. If men were able to improve their mental wellness, that would actually be femtech. I think that male fertility isn't necessarily a femtech category. Some people do. That's fine. I think men's mental health. (laughs) I'll go and I'll accept that. Men's mental health can be a femtech category. That's fine with me. Anyways, I feel so blessed and grateful to be the voice of Femtech. Thank you for bestowing that name upon me this year. It is the name of my book coming out next year. Stay tuned for when you can get your copy. And I'm going to just keep sitting here and talking about women's health innovation because I started back in March of 2020 when everyone thought I was saying fintech and I had to say, no, it's femtech. And they said, oh, it's just periods. And I said, well, not. It's more. 
oh my God, have we evolved and grown and changed. And I can't wait to see the next four years. So great job, women's health innovators, investors, job seekers, interns, students, end users, patients, physicians, researchers. Keep it up. This wave is rolling. It is rolling and the future is bright. The future is so bright for women's health and it's an exciting time. So thank you all so much for tuning in and I'll talk to you next year. Bye. Okay, fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.